Yay. All right. We are in Revelation chapter two. I think this is our fourth meeting in Revelation. Um, and we do go rather slowly here due to the slowness of the teacher. That's the main reason. John, the apostle, is the last apostle living, last man standing. He is uh, a much older guy, uh, and he's on the Isle of Patmos being silenced for his faith. And yet in that situation where no one could possibly use him or he couldn't spread the gospel very much, God uses him tremendously and gives him multiple visions in this book of Revelation. So um, he's told to write them down. This is the only book of the Bible which says it has a blessing for those who read it and keep the words and remember and practice it. So um, it's exciting to read it. The part we're in right now is the seven letters to seven churches. John doesn't write them. John just writes them down. The person that writes them is the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see is dictating the letters and telling John to write them. These are actual churches in what is now, then it was called Asia Minor. Now it's called um, Turkey. That's really where it is. And these are seven actual churches, but each letter concludes with the same phrase which is a heads up for you and me that this letter is also to you. And the phrase is, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what that means is we're not just reading somebody else's mail. This is something that's very pertinent to our churches around us and our lives personally kind of thing. So with that in mind, so that I know that you're awake, say amen. amen. Oh, that's a good one. And those of you on Zoom, brave enough to have your screen up, not many of you, wave and say amen. I can watch your lips move. Okay, great. Uh, so we're in chapter two. We're going to... Uh, we won't review the church in Smyrna, but that's where we were last week uh, and Ephesus before that. This is the church of Pergamum. Some translations have Pergamus, starting in verse 12. Let's read the whole letter, and then we'll talk about it. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, and this is Jesus dictating it, John writing it down. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, verse 15, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you, I will soon come to you, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears or he who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious or overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. 
Boy, there's a lot to unpack here. Amen. Let's take it apart a little at a time. First of all, in chapter one, Jesus gives us a sort of a scorecard to keep track of, or maybe it's a glossary of what the terms mean. When you hear the angel of the church of Pergamum, this is the angel word means a supernatural being, an angel like you would think of, but the word actually, angelos, means messenger. In this case, he's not writing to a supernatural being. He's writing to the pastor, the head, overseer, elder, whatever you want to call him, at the church in Pergamum. The point of it is not just to the leader of the church. He's supposed to read the letter to the church. Imagine getting a letter to the church of in Oakhurst, our church, from Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you pay attention? You can imagine, right? Here's what Jesus thinks of our church. I would kind of be, oh no, you know, the good and the bad. By the way, there are seven letters to seven churches. There's one church about which nothing good is said. Most of the churches have something good. You're doing this right, but I have this against you. You need to improve in this area. There's one church that is doing nothing bad. Kind of interesting, but we'll get into that. Pergamum, to the angel, that's the pastor, the messenger of the church in Pergamum, write this. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Each letter has a different description of Jesus that goes back to, ver to chapter one. Remember the whole description of him with the eyes of fire, uh, feet of burnished bronze, whoops, feet of burnished bronze. Um, he's the one with a sharp, double-edged sword in his mouth. It doesn't mean he's walking around like you know, with a sword in his mouth like a pirate, the sword is the word of God, that his power, his only offensive weapon is the word of God. That's what he's talking about. Each description has to do with something about that church that he's going to mention. Pergamum was the capital, political capital of the whole province of Asia Minor, that part of Western Turkey. Noted for education, some of the smartest people in Turkey Asia Minor, lived there. They had the largest library in the ancient world, more than 200,000 volumes there. Notice I didn't say books. They don't have books. They have parchment. The whole idea of parchment was invented in Pergamum. Parchment is um, the, the ability to write on either stuff that is made from plants that it sort of looks like paper, but also animal skins as well. In modern day Turkey, this is the the town of Berg, Bergama or Bergama. Anyway, very religious pagan city. All of these cities to one degree or another, tons of pagan gods. Just as you in any town you go into or city, there's never one restaurant, right? There's a bunch of, you can have Italian food and Japanese food, burgers. In these towns, there's so many pagan deities you can worship at that temple or this temple and many people to cover their bases worshiped at all of them okay we'll get into that um because it was so religious pergamum won the chance if you can call it that to build the first temple to worship wait for it caesar augustus uh Pretty amazing, a, a human being that's alive then. Most of the other temples are to Athena and Diana and Zeus and Apollo, Apollo I mean, all these fictional gods. This guy is a, a living, elder, a living uh, sorry, Caesar, Caesar Augustus, and they're going to worship him there. Christians, 
if they were caught being Christians, were made to burn a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. We talked about this last week. Do you remember? That's where. That's why the saying, Jesus is Lord, is so important in, uh, in the Bible. Okay, so they're also a center for the worship of I'm going to butcher this name, Asclepios, it looks like to me. Um, this is going to, I just want to warn you, those of you, especially ladies, it's going to make some of you squirm a little, okay? You're going to be thankful for modern medicine when you hear what I'm about to tell you. So they had this temple to Asclepios, which was always represented as a snake, this god that they would worship. He was the God of, small g, knowledge, but especially healing. So people from all over the Roman Empire would come with their various ailments, paralysis, blindness, whatever it was, sickness of any kind, go to uh, Pergamos and go to the temple of Asclepius, where you would spend the night laying on the floor of the temple in the dark. In the temple, on the floor, were thousands of snakes. Yes. Okay. Not poisonous, not dangerous, but snakes nonetheless. So you would sleep on the temple. And how much sleep am I going to get with that going on? And hope that one of the snakes might crawl over your body and you'd feel like, oh, it's the snake God healing me. Now, if anybody would like to participate in this, we could maybe do this here at the church. Just kidding. So it shows you how much, how in the dark they really were, weren't they? Um, not only for the healing thing, but for the God that's a snake. Doesn't that make your skin kind of crawl anyway? Okay. So um, Revelation 1.16 is where Jesus talks about the sword. He judges with his sword. He can speak and make things happen something you and I cannot do, certainly not to this degree. He spoke and the universe leapt into existence. Everything, let there be light, boom, there was light. The only thing that was handmade, if you read the creation account in Genesis one and two, is human beings, right? He handmade everything else he spoke and there were trees and the grasses and oceans and this firmament above and the stars and the moon. He made man out of the dust of the earth and woman out of his side. The only two handmade things. I just thought I'd mention that. You're very handmade and delicate uh, and very important. Okay, we already talked about that. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God, the Bible that you hold in your lap. Hebrews 4.12 says that book is a supernatural book. It says the word of God is living, powerful, able uh, even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus speaks, and that's how much power they, he had in his word and has in his word. But lest you think, yeah, that's Jesus up in heaven. I'm down here on my own. You have a copy of the scriptures. It's a supernatural book. There's no other book like it. You can read it and study it until you feel like you know it all. And when you start again, where you started the first time, you'll see things you never saw before. This is at least my third time teaching the book of Revelation. We're only in chapter two. I'm already seeing all kinds of things I never saw before. 
to the point that you go, wait, was that there before? But it was, right? It's like the Holy Spirit's revealing new things to you. Pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Okay, so that's the little introduction. The, the, the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, he has the ability to judge. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my fellow witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. He's saying all these cities have the pagan temple thing going on, but in a special way that isn't made clear, he calls it Satan's throne. Now, let's talk about that for a second. Are you saying there was Satan worship going on? No, not that we know of. Well, then why is he saying that? Okay, this is what I want you to learn. If you remember nothing else, remember this. When you see people worshiping other gods, whether it's Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius or one of the 330 million, yes, that's the number, gods in Hinduism, when they're worshiping, bowing down to idols, whatever it may be, you may look at that and go, look how stupid that is. And it is. It's a dead idol. The Bible God laughs at that kind of stuff, stone and wood. And, you know, they, we worship the craziest things. People worship money, fame, power, good looks, sex, whatever the case may be. My point is just this. Whenever there's an idol, we could line up all the idols and all the temples of the whole world. Standing behind that idol standing in that temple invisibly receiving the worship and loving it is satan he doesn't care if you call him satan or you call him diana or apollos or zeus or asclepios isn't that interesting it's a snake by the way in the medical profession that's where they get the snake from if you've ever wondered well, what is a snake symbol of healing that's where they get it my point is, Satan loves worship as long as it's not Jesus Christ and the real God of heaven and earth. So behind all these things, all these temples, all this um, very evil idolatry, Satan stands and bring it on. He doesn't care what you call him. He's happy to take the worship, anything but Jesus. He calls the city where Satan has his throne. Now, he means that metaphorically. Satan is an angel. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once, but in a special way, he's receiving worship there. Despite living in that kind of a pagan, horrible uh, environment, these people in the church of Pergamum have remained, uh, still middle of verse 13, you, you remain true to my name, loyal, no compromise, no a little bit of idolatry is okay, but mostly we believe in Jesus. They're remaining true to his name. The name in the Bible, that we worship the name of God. It's not the letters or the sound of the name. A name is everything that is involved in who and what that person is, their character, what they did. When we say the name of Jesus Christ has great power, it does. Not because of the letters, because of who he was, God in a man's body, what he did, died on the cross in your place. Instead of what you deserve, he took and then rose from the dead, fully God, fully man. Anyway, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. The implication is that there was great pressure to do so, to get along, 
In a city where most people were pagans, if you were a, a person that made sandals, for example, or built houses or whatever the case may be, sold tamales, they didn't have tamales, but you know what I'm saying. The point is you'd get a lot more business if you just show up at the pagan temples and, hey, Harry, how are you, Tom? How are you, Ken? Christians had to come out and be separate from all that stuff. And there was great pressure and even political pressure, as I mentioned earlier, to do so. They didn't renounce their faith, not even in the days of, and he's going to give an example of somebody in their congregation they remember who's now deceased, who died because he was a Christian and wouldn't renounce Christianity. And that's this guy, Antipas. If you've ever eaten in an Italian restaurant, he invented Antipasta. Okay, no. Please don't take me too seriously. Okay, just trying to keep you awake. Are you awake? Say amen. Okay. Those of you on Zoom, did you get that? Antipasto? Yeah, okay. I'm Italian. I talk with my hands. Um, Let's see. Even in the days when one of your own, Antipas, my faithful witness. Now, the word is witness. Witness in Greek is martis, M-A-R-T-Y-S, I believe it's spelled. It just meant someone that was a witness court of law. I witnessed an accident. I'm a martyr. But it came to mean martyr, meaning somebody that witnessed to the point of dying for what they believe. This guy is one of those. He's not an apostle. He's just a faithful Christian Gentile who was put to death in your city where, and he reminds them, where Satan lives. Satan loved that. Okay. Now, poor Antipas. Well, Let's talk about Antipas. He believed so strongly that when challenged, he would not renounce Jesus. He would not say, hail Caesar or Caesar is Lord. And he lost his life and gained everything. So don't say poor Antipas, right? In the Broadway musical Evita, there's a song, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Do you know this song? He would say, don't cry for me. I'm in glory. This is awesome. Martyrs have special glory and honor in heaven. Okay. But Satan surely killed this guy to shut him up, figuring I'm sending a message to that whole church in Pergamum. You better watch out. You better play along with the paganism here, which is my throne. And the church responded by saying, there's no way we'll back down. This is a pretty amazing church. Are they perfect? No. But you did not renounce your faith in me, and there was great pressure to do so. In America, in 2022, there may be this year or sometime soon great pressure, more than there already is, to renounce your faith. We Christians are commanded to obey the laws, Romans 13, of the country with one exception. It's either Matthew, I'm sorry, it's either Acts 4 or 5. I don't know why I have a mental block. I can never remember. I think it's 5, where Peter and some of the apostles are arrested for preaching the gospel. And they have a little hearing, and they beat him up and say, don't preach that name anymore. And Peter says, sorry, we must obey God rather than men. That's the the dividing line. When they say it's illegal to go to church, it's illegal to have Tuesday night Bible study, it's illegal to own a Bible, which is true in some countries, by the way, that's when we say, sorry. You mean even if they'll kill you or put you in prison? Yes. 
that's what I mean. This guy, Antipas, clearly Italian because of the name. No, I'm just kidding. Um, was faithful to the point of death. I pray it never comes to that for any of you or me or any of you on Zoom. But if it does, it's the ultimate test. If you think you might be weak enough to wimp out, you're right. But if you think the Holy Spirit isn't strong enough to keep you standing, you're wrong. Let's move on. Nevertheless, verse 14, I have a few things against you. So pretty good report cards so far. Remained true to his name, didn't renounce their faith, even when one of their own was put to death. And even though they live in a place that's like Satan's throne. I was thinking as I read this, what would be if I said, name a city that's sort of like Satan's throne today. You could say years ago, Sodom and Gomorrah. You could say Rome during the Roman Empire. Some would say Hollywood, maybe Washington, D.C. Okay, no political partisanship. Um, San Francisco, L.A., um, uh, uh, there's Amsterdam. There's all kinds of cities that are especially sinful. But I got news for you. Every city sinful to one degree or another, uh, even Oakhurst and Corsicle. Okay, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. This is an Old Testament character who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Okay, I'm going to give you the flyover overview, and then we'll get into the details. The flyover overview is Balaam was basically a prophet for hire, for money, okay? And he basically helped Balak indirectly because he didn't want to do it himself. Balak asked him, will you curse your fellow Israelites? And he said, I, I can't really do that. But I'll tell you what you could do. I have a price, and I'll teach you how you can make the Israelites weaker by enticing them to sin sexually and with regard to um, idolatry, worshiping. He knew, Balaam did, Judaism, and the center of Judaism is monotheism, one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. Have no other gods before me, first commandment. Just get them to worship other gods. Just get them involved in sexual immorality. Those two things, by the way, those come up in five or six of the seven letters. Immorality, we said last week, was so common in that society that you were considered weird that, yeah, we've been married 40 years and no, she doesn't mess around. I don't mess around with anyone else. We're married. They just give you one of those, right? Like, really? Um, okay. Some people in that church held to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, this is Old Testament, to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols. Okay, what's that? That means that it could mean one of two things. Okay, number one, there were all those temples and they would sacrifice a whole lamb to the goddess Aphrodite or Bacchus, the god of wine, or this... And then there's all this leftover meat. So the butcher shops, the Rayleigh's at Safeways and Vaughn's of that era, they had them, would buy the meat inexpensively. 
because it's been sacrificed to idols. So there were some Christians that would think, I'm, I don't want to go anywhere near that meat. It's been sacrificed to idols. I'm not doing it. There were others that went, you know what? It's half the price. I know the idol's not real. I don't care. I don't think God cares. It's all good. Give me four pounds of ham and some, you know, uh, hamburger meat. Anyway, my point is that they, the other school of thought, besides it's just meat sacrificed to idols, is that they're actually attending in the temple. When the meat sacrificed to idols, some of it is eaten in a feast. And some of them are maybe justifying it the same way I just said, which is this. I know this idol's nothing. It's just a big stone, nothing. Doesn't bother me. I know my Jesus. First of all, what are you doing in that temple, right? Well, I'm just here to witness for Christ. Part of the worship in these temples was sexual immorality. I know it sounds like those two things just don't go together, but they put them together. Corinth, the city of Corinth, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, they had a temple there and they had a thousand temple prostitutes. And so the men would explain, honey, you know why I'm going there? To worship. That's why I'm going. So the combination of idolatry and sexual immorality, which, by the way, often go together. Some in that church were, um, you know, okay with it and encouraging others maybe to do it, just like Balaam helped Balak. Balak was a Moabite leader who wanted to destroy the Israelites. <clears throat> Excuse me. He hires Balak. Now go curse the Jews. And he says, no, nah, I can't curse my own people. Got to be mad at me. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. And then he tells them this thing about get them to worship other gods. They got them involved in pagan festivals. They got them intermarrying uh, and what have you. He put a stumbling block before Israel, idolatry and sexual immorality. So that was rampant in the city. Some people succumbed to the temptation there in Pergamum, and he's calling them out on it. I want you to notice he doesn't need to get a briefing. Who doesn't? Jesus. He knows, right? Everything. He's watching every one of his churches. He stands in chapter one in the midst of the churches. And the seven stars that are the leaders of the churches are in his hand. You remember that in chapter one a couple of weeks ago. So uh, likewise, so that's the first sin. You got some that are soft on that stuff. 15, verse 15, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nic Nicolaitans. Okay, so let's talk about the Nicolaitans. They're mentioned, by the way, in Revelation 2, 6, where Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, is commended because Jesus says to them, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and Jesus says, and so do I. We talked about that, remember, last week. Does Jesus hate? Yes. Some things sin, absolutely, for the absolute worst thing in the universe that it is. Okay, the, the Nicolaitans um, are, in a way, very similar. The word mean, Nicolaitan, means to conquer the people. It's sort of tyrannical, very heavy-handed authority where they are approving of immorality. There are churches, Ken and I were talking about one 
earlier that are willing to compromise with our society. And we don't mention at this church this or that because it's controversial and we just don't say anything. Well, the Bible does. Yeah, I know. But here we don't want to offend anybody. Just the wrong thing to do. Anyway, so um, there was a uh, in Acts 15, there's a Jerusalem council. The Christian heavy hitters all meet in Jerusalem to discuss how much conduct are we allowing or not allowing. And the big decision there was the meat sacrifice to idols. If it's doubtful, let's just not do it. As a rule, tell all the churches. And sexual immorality, no way. Purity all the way. So there's already been some compromise, if you will. Balaam is the prototype for compromise with the world, compromise with paganism, idolatry, immorality. They're like the church in Corinth. They're too seeker sensitive to the point that they are too tolerant. Now, tolerance to a point is good, isn't it? They're too tolerant. They're tolerating things. Jesus, God says, that's sin. Stay away from that for your own good. And they're saying, well, a little isn't that bad. If I invited you over to my house to eat some brownies that I made, and I said, you know, they're 98% um, dog dropping free. 98%, come on, that's pretty good. Wouldn't you be going, hmm, what's the other 2% again, right? But 98%, come on, they're chocolate. Look, they're soft. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's Old Testament and New. What's leaven? A picture of sin. It doesn't take a lot for it to explode and grow in a church. When there are people that in the church, just those four over there are sinning regularly, what happens is we start to see, number one, they seem to be having a good time. They seem like nice people. The pastors don't seem to care. Yeah, I'll go kind of thing right? I'm going to go to the temple to worship, honey. Yeah, right. Okay, so now comes the, that's the charge, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, same kind of thing, idolatry and Im, Im, sexual immorality. Verse 16, repent, therefore. What does repent mean? It's not, it's a lot more than this word appeared in the previous last week's Bible study. Repent is not just, I'm sorry, I sinned. If that's part of it, it's not, I'm bummed out, I got caught. It's part of that too. But it is a U-turn on the road of life where you stop doing what God says is sin, because if he's your Lord, Lord means master, it means boss, right? So that's why we read the book to find out what does God not want me to do? Oh, what does he want me to do? Repent is change the way you're going, and go the other direction. If you think you can repent on your own, you're wrong. Much as it feels like, I, no, I, I'm going to make up my mind. You heard me pray. There's several people we pray for, aren't there? Take the desire for alcohol away from Michael and so-and-so and this person. Take the desire for drugs away from Aileen and other people. Do you know why I'm praying to God for that? Because the person on their own, we're weak. We're just bent towards sin. 
right? We're, we have a sin nature. We're born SIN positive. You heard of HIV positive? We're born SIN positive. It takes the Holy Spirit changing us and us submitting to him to be able to say no to sin. Addiction of all kinds, whether it's pornography or greed is a form of addiction. Um, greed is also called, by the way, idolatry in the New Testament. Okay. Let's see. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, this is a warning. I'm giving you a limited time offer. Repent. Stop. Now, that may mean to those four people, let's say it's probably not a very large group, that are into this stuff. He's saying to them specifically, repent. But he's also saying to the pastor, if that was me, repent, meaning kick them out until they do, right? Don't let them be in a church and wink at sin and put blinders on and not care about it because they're in their group there. There are some, um, yeah, there are some among you, verse 14, that means in the church. Do you see that? That are doing these things and approving of these things. So. Otherwise, if you don't repent, both the ones doing it and the ones allowing it, the church itself. Otherwise, verse 16, I will come I soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Some sort of amazing judgment comes out of his mouth verbally against these people. There are instances, they're weird, but they're in there. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians is one, where some people are sinning as Christians to such a degree that God says, I would rather take them out. I don't mean out of the church. I mean, kill them as opposed to letting them be a bad influence on my little flock. Okay. God is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, right? If you're a shepherd and you have 99 sheep and two of them are diseased and you let the two stay there, guess what? Disease is going to spread through your sheep COVID, sheep pox instead of monkey pox. Okay, I made that up. Um, so their unwillingness to repent will show that they deserve the judgment of God's word. Um, by the way, if they don't repent, he's sort of saying they might die by the sword of his mouth. He would speak the word and they would die. Balaam in the Old Testament dies by the Israelites' sword. Kind of the same story. Okay, now we get to my favorite part. Verse 17. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We'll just briefly say again, that means listen up. This is for you. Don't think, oh, no, I... Look, I'm, there's no pagan temples here in our town, wherever you live in a big city. There's no pagan temples. Listen, there's pagan temples on your computer. There's pagan temples on your television. There's pagan temples in the movie theater. Okay. It's what are you worshiping? What are you placing ahead of God in your life or mine? Pagan temples for some people, there's nothing wrong with banks. Some people a bank is a pagan temple. That's where my treasure is, boy. Look at my balance on my balance sheet. Look how much I have in my account. If that's for you, a pagan temple, you need to repent of that. That's what he's saying. Repent. Something for everybody in these uh, things. Same thing with churches that wink at or look the other way at. Sin has to be dealt with. The goal is not to point out, Harry is a sinner, let's kick him out. The goal is restoration and repentance for Harry 
and for the church, but also so that everyone in the church will know, boy, this church is serious about sin. Poor Harry. No, no, this is for Harry's good and the church is good. The sick church is the one that looks the other way. And there's all kinds of immorality and idolatry going on. Pornography is idolatry. Okay. In a sense, alcoholism, drug addiction, idolatry. I'm putting that ahead of God, getting drunk every night, using drugs every night, looking at pornography every night, sleeping around. I'm working so much. I'm never home with my family. Idolatry. Money is the idol. Do you see what I mean? It's not just bowing to weird little God things that aren't real. We have, we don't fall for that here. Satan has created special idols in America, right? Um, American Idol, the TV show. No, I'm just kidding. I couldn't resist that one. Um, okay, back to this verse. And actually, you know what? I'm going to introduce the subject, and then we're going to take our break in a second, because this is so great. To the one who is victorious, I'm still in verse 17, the one who overcomes, I, Jesus, will give some of the hidden manna. What's manna? Jews have left Israel. They're wandering in the wilderness. They're whining. Do you remember? We should have never, oi, we should have never listened. They had all kinds of good food there. We got nothing in the desert here. What are you doing, Moses? And God says, okay, here's some bread from heaven. You mean once? No, I mean every morning. A miracle every morning. It rains food from heaven. Hello, you better believe in him, Jews. Did they? No, they end up complaining. Same thing every day with the manna. Could we have like a hot dog here and there? My point is, God gave them bread from heaven. Okay, you say, yeah, well, what, what is that? Okay, this bread, we're not sure what it, what it was. In fact, the word manna literally in Hebrew means, what is it? That's what it means. What did you have for breakfast? What is it? I don't know, but we ate it. Somehow God's bread, it's not wonder bread. It's not sourdough. It had everything you need to nourish your body. There had to be fiber in there, somehow vegetables, fruits. I don't know the chemical makeup of it. I wish I could have some manna. I wouldn't need to cook just manna again. Great. The point is he provided sustenance for them. Then you go to John chapter six, and the Jews thought we get the manna. It was God giving us bread, sustenance, and Jesus has the audacity to say, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They're saying, what? And then he makes it so abhorrent to them that many of them turn away. In fact, the verse is John 6, verse 66. How about that? Many of them that were following him no longer followed him. We're out of here. When he says this, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Cannibalism? He didn't mean it literally, right? He's saying, I am not a philosopher that you can listen to and leave. I'm the bread from heaven that you have to take me in what you you are what you eat you ever heard that saying take what my word in and actually digest it to the point that i become part of you and you part of me the bread from heaven is the only way to eternal life just as the manna from heaven i'm sure there were jews that went oi not eating it you're going to starve if you don't eat it 
In the same way, spiritually, he's saying I'm the only food in this wilderness called sinful world. Let's take our two-minute break and stretch our aging bodies. Some of you are aging more rapidly than others. And we'll pick it up in two minutes. I'm going to turn my screen off. Don't go away on Zoom. I'll be back in two minutes. We're back. Thanks for sticking around. Find your seats back there, those of you that are here munching on the snacks. Thanks to Gene. Um, okay, so we've got the manna. Why is it hidden manna? Somebody asked me. Okay, so we have that in the notes as well. First of all, in the Ark of the Covenant, do you remember the Ark of the Covenant? A little box about that big that was covered with gold in which the Ten Commandments were. Um, there was also a little bit of the manna saved from Israel. I believe, you may think I'm crazy due to the laws of things. Uh, decomposing, I believe if you could find the Ark of the Covenant today, I think you'd see Aaron's rod that butted in there. You'd see the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and you would see a little bit of unspoiled manna. Maybe we'll get to taste it in heaven, right? Um, so it was hidden from the Jews. They didn't get to see it. So it's some of the hidden manna. It's a special food. Is that it, Joe? No. I feel like one of those pitchmen on TV, but wait, there's more if you order now. The hidden manna, what did I just talk about? John 6, Jesus, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven, the ultimate manna. He's saying he takes so many Old Testament pictures and incidents and says, that was about me. That was about me. In John 5, he tells, the, I think it's John 5, he tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them they have eternal life. But those scriptures are the ones that bear witness about me. He's saying the whole Old Testament, one way or another, is about me. A high priest, a lamb that's slain for the uh, sins of the family or the people or what have you. Okay, so is Jesus the hidden manna? I believe he is. What do you mean hidden? Can you see him? I can't see him. I can see him in the effect he's had in the lives of people that I love and the way that he's changed them. He's changed this life for sure, but I can't see him. He's hidden. He's saying that part of being an overcomer is that you will see and actually have Jesus in a way you never did before. That's what I believe many of the commentators talked about that. Okay, there's another interesting picture in this um, in this, uh, passage. Okay. I'll give you some of the, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person, what person, the victorious overcomer person. Who's that? The one that never compromises when the world says immorality, it's really okay. Right. Um, I don't want to get off on a long tangent, but this just came into my mind. So I'm going to say it. Those of you that are old enough to have watched television in the 50s or the 60s, you know that situation comedies, the husband and wife slept in separate beds, right? Um, I always thought my parents, boy, my parents are weird. They're in the same bed. This is on you, right? Dean, uh, Desi and, and Lucy, two separate beds, right? Uh, Rob Petrie and his wife, Laura, Dick Van Dyke show, separate beds. Why? For, what'd you say? Ozzy and Harriet. I never, I don't remember that one as much. I'm not as old as you. Anyway, 
I actually do remember the show, Ricky Nelson, right? Okay. My point is just this. There was decency. They were very careful with that stuff. Today, I could turn on a TV here and just show you commercials that you'd go, oh my, did they just, yes. There's a loosening of morals. The world is trying to suck you and I into the point of, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Russell and I were just talking about it's in the schools. It's in school books for kindergartners, all that stuff, LGBTQ, just an alternative lifestyle. I'm going with the Bible. Hasn't I looked it up. It hasn't changed. It still says it's a sin. That's why we have to know this book, know what we believe and why we believe it. Okay. Be careful what you watch on TV, movies, popular music. Okay. Where were we? Hidden manna. I will also, I'm in verse 17. It's a long verse. I will also give that person, the overcomer, a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. What on earth is that? Okay. It's one of those things. I'm just going to tell you. I'm not sure. There's all kinds of ideas in the commentaries. Here's the reason. In those days, a white stone, there was all kinds of uses that were special for a white stone. For example, white stones were used, this is before printing presses, as tickets to get into an event. White stone. Is that what he means? My ticket, I've been given a ticket to heaven. Could be white stones were given with the name engraved on it if you won your event in the Olympics. Hurdles or racing or wrestling or whatever, you won and there's the white stone with my name on it. By the way, if you had that white stone and you had won one Olympics and it has my name, Joe Sherino right there, look, it uh, entitles me to live forever not forever, but for the rest of my life on uh, my countries uh, supporting me. Food, lodging, everything. They took care of their athletes, didn't they? So that's what it meant. It was a, an invitations were white stone. It was a sign of friendship between two people that had had a rift between them and they had made up. And is he still mad at me? No, he gave you this white stone. It meant you're forgiven. You, uh, that, so all of these fit together, don't they, with Jesus? We are forgiven. It is a ticket. It is um, that we've overcome, and we are now going to be in Christ's kingdom where he's going to take care of us forever. Um, okay, what else is a white stone? Um, assurance of blessing. In court, I love this one for Christianity. In court. The defendant, Joe, is charged with doing this particular crime. They have the trial. Not guilty. White stone. Don't you like that picture as well? Which one is it? Might be all of them. That's why I'm telling you. I don't know. I read a lot of commentaries. I'm reading all these historic things with white stones. Maybe they all fit in a way. Um, Yeah, we already talked about that. But the point is, you and I are invited white stone invitation to a banquet called the marriage supper of the lamb marriage supper you mean like a wedding reception yes when is it after the tribulation where is it heaven who's getting married jesus what who's he marrying you what the bride of christ the church Not only are you invited, you're the bride. 
even the men, yes, a little weird, but he's the groom. God's gift, right, is him. So that marriage supper, Revelation 19, we'll probably get there in the year 2028. But anyway, for now, um, let's keep reading because there's more in that verse. Hidden manna, a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Isn't that odd? That means you won't know my name on the stone and I won't know yours. Kind of strange. It says it's known only to the person who receives it. Okay. Now, the majority opinion on this scripture is kind of a trip. Have you ever been really, really, really close to someone? Best friend for 20 years, 30 years, or your spouse, or your brother, your sister? Um, have you ever had that kind of relationship where two people known each other for so long? It happens a lot with married couples, where they call each other a name in a good way, not calling names, a pet name that I don't call anybody things I call Sherry or she calls me. Or we had names for our kids that were, it shows, listen, intimacy, right? Of a, of a variety that I don't think we ever had on planet earth like we can have with the God of the universe. The fact that he would like you or me that much blows my mind because we're not that great, right? Compared to him, he's perfect. That shows the love he has for his kids. I just love that whole idea. So a white stone and some hidden manna were invited to a marriage supper, Revelation 19. Um, I love the idea of a ticket because maybe that white stone is your and my reservation in heaven. When will it be made? That's the mind blower. Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When was your reservation made? A trillion, trillion years ago in your name. Mind blowing. But I didn't even exist. You're right. God knew you though. Let's keep rolling. Thyatira. To the angel, I'm in verse 18. Let's see how we'll get on time. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These are the words of the son of God. Different title. All go back to chapter one. Whose eyes are like blazing fire, chapter one. Whose feet are like burnished bronze, chapter one. Okay, here comes the letter. I know your deeds. You can hide from me. You can hide from Russell. You can't hide from God. I know your deeds. I'm supposed to be reading and not explaining. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance that you're now doing more than you did at first. Boy, this is a model church so far. Look at that. Well, we'll come back to it. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Here we go again. With a different slant, I'll show you in a second. I have given her time to repent of her immor immorality, but she is unwilling. 
So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, that's the Jezebel lady, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, verse 27, that that one will rule them with an iron scepter or a rod of iron and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one, the morning star, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. Pretty amazing letter to Thyatira. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. You still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. You guys on Zoom? You doing okay? Okay. Um, it's always keeps me humble that there's one or two screens now and then on Zoom when I glance down where the person looks like this. <laughs> anyway, seriously, it's, it's very, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, the Lord's really speaking and I'm looking. Okay. To the angel of the church, that's the pastor in Thyatira. These are the words of the son of God. That's who Jesus is. In Jewish thinking, and even in the Roman and pagan thinking of that day, to use the term son of meant that you are everything that thing implies. What do you mean? Jesus calls John and James, the brothers, the sons of thunder. The thing about thunder is it's really boisterous and loud. I think John and James were loud. Sons of thunder. A son of disobedience is somebody that's always disobeying. But a son of God is God, is deity. So that's what that title has to do with. He's describing himself. These are the words of, instead of saying me, he says the son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire. This appeared earlier in these letters. That speaks to the fact that he sees everything and his judgment is laser perfect. You can't escape from him. Eyes like blazing fire, feet like burnished bronze. Bronze is metal that has been refined through fire. It is extra strong. The impurities have been burned away. He's come through the fire of the cross and come through to rise from the dead for you and I. So there's strength. There's the fact that he's the son of God and he has blazing fire eyes that judge um, completely. Verse 19, I know your deeds. Do you know that he says that to you? I know. I know your deeds. What do you mean? The good ones? Yes. And the bad ones? Yes. I know your deeds. Sobering, isn't it? But look at all these good things, this church. Ephesus, remember, chapter two, had left their first love. Not these guys. I know your deeds, your love and faith. Listen, faith, hope, and love. Remember, the greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13. This is really high grades. I know their deeds. I know their love and their faith. They've got the love outwardly 
toward others and to God. They have faith. They're staying the course, believing in Jesus Christ. Your service, your ministry to others, serving the community, serving each other. It's a very humble, loving, faithful church. So far, they're getting an A, but not so fast. And perseverance, very important in that culture, right? And yet, and, and the last thing, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. You know what that is? Growth. Churches tend to do like this, up to a plateau, and then we just kind of level off, and we're just kind of cruising. We're not doing more, but we're not doing less. We're okay. The point is to be doing more and more, more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, ideally. Okay. Thyatira is the smallest of the seven cities, the least significant in many ways. Um, and yet they get the longest letter. Isn't that just like God? Such a little insignificant town, Raymond, California. And there, if you, those of you that are on Zoom that are in other parts of the country or other parts of the world, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Raymond is a small, small town. Okay. Nipponawasi on Highway 49. Amen. Okay. Um, small town. And yet he writes the longest letter to them. Here's what's going on. They had their, um, they're famous for their purple cloth. You say, that's what they're famous for? Listen, dyes, D-Y-E, to dye something a certain color, very rare, hard to find. Purple, everybody wanted. It was the color of royalty. Purple dye was valuable. This is where they did it. They had other industries. What this town had more than any other town around was unions, trade guilds. If you know anything about unions, you know that they can help the worker, but they can also exclude those who aren't members to where you can't get any work in this town if you're not in the union, right? Strikes and all that. They, way ahead of their time, they've got the trade guild union thing down. The problem is the unions, historians write, met, guess where? In the pagan temples. We're just going to have some drinks and eat. That's where our meeting will be. And there'll be some girls there, you know, so leave your wife at home. And gosh, I need the work. I'm a plumber. Probably not in that era, but you know what my point is, where I'm going here. I have to go to the meeting, honey. Do you? Is it worth losing work? to not be a member of these trade guilds. Each trade guild had their own patron deity. If you know anything about paganism, they have a God of wine, a God of sex, a God of marriage, a God of children, a God of work, a God of strength, a God of, they have gods for everything, right? Like Hinduism, 330 million gods. Um, in Acts 16, there's a lady named Lydia of Thyatira, same city. And she is a seller of uh, purple cloth. She comes from this little town, becomes a Christian, by the way. So uh, there's great pressure in this town to conform to the pagan stuff just to make ends meet. Um, so they've got some really essential, great Christian qualities, love and service and faith and patience, and, and it's ever increasing. They're doing so well, but they're tolerating something else. Okay. Nevertheless, uh, verse 20, I have this 
against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. Stop right there. Jezebel, Old Testament, one of the most evil people in the Old Testament, a real human being. Is this the same lady? No, no, no. It's centuries later. Almost for certain, every commentary I read said this is not the lady's name. It's a title, like calling somebody, that guy at work, he's like a Hitler. Doesn't mean his name is Hitler, he's like Hitler. Or you ever been betrayed by somebody and you say, he was, she was just a Judas to me. Okay, not their name. Her name almost certainly is not Jezebel, but the point is, she's just like Jezebel in the Old Testament. She calls herself a prophetess. Okay. Are there prophetesses? Yes, that's a word. Um, female prophets in the New Testament? Yes, it's rare, but they're there. So the, the office is possible, but this woman calls herself a prophetess, which means what? God is going, I didn't speak to her. A prophet or prophetess is someone that says, folks, gather around. Thus saith the Lord, God told me to tell you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you, and they'll tell you to do things or not to do things, teaching you, or they will tell you prophecy. I predict that by Friday, this is going to happen. Now, the Bible looks at prophecy very seriously. In Deuteronomy, I think it's 18, it says, if Jeff claims to be a prophet, doesn't name him, but it's true of Jeff. If he claims to be a prophet and he predicts something will happen, thus saith the Lord, not just Jeff going, I think the Raiders are going to win the Super Bowl this year. That's just Jeff talking. But if Jeff, Jeff says, I'm a prophet, thus saith the Lord, so-and-so is going to do this by Friday. Okay. And it doesn't happen. The penalty is death, Old Testament. We don't mess around. Don't say God said it if God didn't say it. That's the bottom line. She calls herself a prophetess, this woman. And the church is tolerating it. In the Greek, it actually reads, and I'll tell you why, there's a theory that this is the pastor's wife. There's a theory that says that because in the Greek, it reads, you tolerate your woman, Jezebel. Who's he writing to? The pastor. I mean, it's to the whole church, but it's to the, the angel of the church in Thyatira. Is it his wife? I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is, there's a lady standing up at services saying, I'm a prophet. Thus saith the Lord. We'll get to what she's saying in a second. You won't believe it in a church that they would allow it. But She's well-known. Maybe the family's wealthy. They donate to the church. Let's just let her say her piece. Only those people believe her. Most of us don't really believe her. The point is the church should be saying, hey, Jezebel, whatever your name is, Lucille, stop that. Right? But they're not. They tolerate. The whole church does. There's nobody going to the pastor going, hey, why are, why are we letting this woman do this. There are scriptures, New Testament, that say in a church, a woman is not to be an authority over a man in a church setting. A woman cannot be the head pastor with authority over a man. Don't write me letters, ladies. I didn't make the rule. God did. There are roles each person is to play. All are important. Women can serve in a thousand different ways at a church, but they 
tolerator and she calls herself a prophet. Here it comes. I'm still in 20. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. She's basically saying it's not that bad. God understands boys will be boys. If there's a little immorality here and there, it's just, you know, it doesn't matter that much. In church, can you imagine? I can imagine because there's, we already talked about pagan temples where there's a thousand temple prostitutes in Corinth. What? That's so, the two things are so opposite. And yet Satan, knowing people's sinful nature, well, I just have this proclivity with sex and what? There's a church where you can do that? Where is it? Vegas, probably, right? Or somewhere, you know, um, the church of the holy prostitute or something. Whoa, they're tolerating this. She's by her teaching, and this makes God angry. She misleads my servants, my little ones. You remember Jesus talks about in the, in the gospel of Matthew and elsewhere, if anyone um, causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better if a millstone was tied around his neck. Do you remember? And he was thrown into the deepest part of the sea. Don't mess with my kids, says God. If you have a little kid and you find out somebody got your kid hooked on drugs, how mad would you be? Somebody got your kid hooked on booze. Somebody got your kid hooked on homosexuality or some sexual perversion thing, showing them pornography. How mad would you be? That's how mad God is. She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. We already talked about all that. Here's grace. You want to hear grace? Verse 21. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. Boy, there's grace. I'm surprised God didn't strike her dead, right? When she stood up and went, thus saith the look, right? And, right? It wouldn't, like Darth Vader in Star Wars, he gave her time to repent. What does that mean? It may mean that the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, shut up, don't do this anymore. You're prophesying falsely. It may be that somebody in the church, Jeff and Doreen went and talked to her and said, you know, the Bible is so clear that in Hebrews says, adulterers and fornicators, God will judge. That's pretty clear. Why are you prophesying that it's okay? Well, it's just a little Sometimes in Christian churches, there's this rationalization. Yes, it's sin, but if you need the release, you go do it and then confess. Ollie, ollie, oxen free. And then next month, it, you do it again, but then you just confess. Paul covers that in Romans, right? Shall we sin more that grace may abound? May it never be, he says. We want to be as far away from that stuff as possible because we see it as the cancer that God sees it as the worst thing sin is in the universe. Okay. Um, where were we? Sorry. Um, so I've given her time to repent of her immorality. She's unwilling. So he's proclaiming judgment in verse 22. Therefore, or so, I will. This is going to happen. He's telling them, watch. Literally in the Greek, it reads, I'll cast her on a bed. My translation has a bed of suffering, because that's implied in the text. 
It's a play on words. It's sort of a pun. It's saying Jezebel, the immorality prophetess, you want to have a good time on a bed, Jezebel? I'm going to cast you on a bed, meaning the only other thing besides sleeping, besides sex on a bed is you're so sick, you're where? In bed. He's saying, I'm going to throw her on that bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely as well is implied there. Okay. He is not going to just take her out initially. He's going to make her sick. My old pastor in Santa Cruz, Twin Lakes Church, Pastor Roy Kraft, he's dead now, um, used to say, what does God have to do to get your attention? He was a little guy. He had a weird voice. Man, he had wisdom, though. He used to say, and I won't use his voice anymore, but he used to say, some people only look up when there's nowhere else to look. When you're in bed in the hospital and you're looking at the ceiling tiles going, what's going on in my life? You ever have that happen to you where something serious health problem happens and it really makes you evaluate everything? Not to the Chris Christopherson, why me, Lord? Like, what did I do to deserve this? But sometimes God disciplines his children, right? And gets you in a bed where he can, are you paying attention now, Joe? Yes, Lord, what is it? May I learn everything I'm supposed to from this trouble I'm in, sickness I'm in, whatever it may be. So he's going to cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her, the ones that are going along, suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. You know what that is? That's grace too. Could just zap them, right? Old Testament, sometimes people just gone. He's going to make them suffer. It has been said that God whispers in to our lives when everything's going well, but he shouts in our infirmity. In other words, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said it, but I could be wrong, that in, when we're sick, when we have major trouble, when we have financial trouble, when we have interrelational problems with friends or family or wife or spouse or kids or whatever, boy, that's when we're really paying attention. And God says, do I have your attention now? Pastor Kraft, what does God have to do to get your attention? The, the underlying, between the lines, wisdom there is pay attention, read the word, obey it. So he doesn't have to put you in the hospital with two broken legs and in casts with poison oak underneath the casts. My mother knew a lady my mother worked with at IBM, got in a car accident, really bad, broke both legs, crawled in the forest to come up to the road where she was. Somebody found her. They put her in the hospital. Two, this is true. Two broken legs in casts and like, oh no, I crawled through poison oak. She had poison oak under the casts. You ever had poison oak where you want to scratch so bad she can't reach it? Okay. Now I've made you squirm. What you need to do is get a snake and put it on yourself. Never mind. Yeah. The snake will scratch the poison oak for you. Okay, let's keep rolling. Um, so he's going to make them suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Yikes. Is this literal? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. If her children are little and they're innocent, he might strike them dead and take them right to heaven. 
age of accountability, little ones, right? David's baby dies, do you remember? And he says, I, the baby cannot go to me because he's in heaven, Lord, but I will go to him. Implying maybe babies are saved. What sins have they committed? What chance did they have to receive Jesus Christ? Just saying, maybe. But here's the reason for all this. Middle of verse 23. Then all the churches, not the pagans, they're not going to care. All the churches, all the believers will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Wow. In other words, he searches hearts and minds. He even searches motives. You can't look that up on YouTube. You can't look that up on Google. You can look up on Google, what did Hillary Clinton do? And there'll be a list of things. What was her motive? You can't, there's nowhere to search for that. God knows, right? Some good things are done, but with the wrong motives. God knows. I'm the one that searches hearts and minds, the son of God earlier in this passage. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. That means God is, wait for it, totally fair. He's totally fair. I'll repay each of you according to your deeds. Let's talk about pay for a second. The wages of sin is death. Second death last week, remember? Hell, outer darkness, lake of fire. Repay each of you according to your deeds. You ever hear people say, I want what I deserve from God. No, you don't. I don't. I don't want what I deserve. I don't deserve anything from him except punishment. I want what Jesus deserves. Don't you? By faith, that's where why we're saved. That's why our deeds that are sins are all erased, are all paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful salvation we have. The point is that all the churches will know because they'll hear. The implication is that Jezebel, the prophetess, has a little going ministry, not just in this church in Thyatira, but maybe she's been to the Ephesus church and she's been over to Sardis and other places, Laodicea. All the churches will, did you hear what happened to her? No. God said he was going to put cast her on a bed of suffering, and he did. We're not told what happened to her, but what about this striking her children dead? I'm sure there's somebody listening on Zoom or in this room that thinks, boy, that just seems a little harsh. I hope I don't offend anybody with this analogy, but imagine we'll make it me. I go to the doctor and I got pain in my stomach. And he says, you know, you got a huge tumor in there. And what we need to do is cut the whole thing out before it spreads. Would you think I was stupid if I said, I hate to hurt all those little cancer cells though. Can you leave some of them in there? I feel bad. You're just going to eradicate it. What are you going to do with them? We're going to throw them in the garbage. Oh, are they alive? Yes. Will they be dead? Yes. Hmm. That's how God sees sin in a church. Leave it alone. It'll grow. Kill it. It is the blessing of blessings for a church to get it 
out of there with, as you saw, grace, time to repent. I've given her time to repent. Um, unless they repent at the end of verse 22 of, their, of, of her ways. God is gracious, but he has to judge sin because it's the loving thing to do. Yes, doc, cut me open and take every last cell out and throw them away. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could study this amazing book. And we haven't even gotten into the prophecy part, which is like the ride really begins, but it's already begun. Thank you that there's a blessing for us for reading it and studying it, God. I pray that we remember what we have learned. I pray that we remain faithful in a pagan, idolatrous, immoral world, that we are watching carefully what are we thinking, seeing, hearing, doing that is not pleasing to you, God? Show us, Father. Trim our trees, God. Take away the dead branches. Help us to never be ones that would renounce our faith. Uh, help us to remain true to you, like the church we read about a, minute, a few minutes ago. Help us remain to remain unstained, unchanged, by the immorality we see. May we live in it, but not be of it in any way. May our works and faith and love continue to grow as this church did. May we be careful about checking out every person that says they're a teacher of the word or a prophet. May we remember um, Acts 17, 11 that says to check everything out with scripture uh, to see if these things are true, to hold fast to what's scriptural and get rid of the rest, God. Thank you for your grace that saved people like all of us. We love you. We can't wait to see you. Bless this lesson and these things that we've heard. God, may they change the way we live and think. We pray these things in Jesus' name to his glory. Amen. Thanks for being here, those of you on Zoom. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone that you don't know. They're waiting to see if you'll talk to them right now. And the rest of you on Zoom, God bless you. Thank you so much. We'll see you next Tuesday night, God willing.